This show includes adult conversations around sometimes sensitive topics. Check the show notes at cxmhpodcast.com for trigger warnings. You're listening to the CXMH Podcast with Robert Vore and Steve Austin. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. All right, welcome to CXMH, uh, as the intro just said, I guess. So I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Steve Austin, Steve, how are you today? I feel like I always start out asking that, and I'm trying to think of a new way maybe to ask that. But uh, It's because you're so proper. As Sarah Fader would say, it's because you're British. If you were American, you'd be like, what's up? But no, it's how are you today? Well, it's all good. How are you doing, Steve? <laughs> <laughs> I'm good, buddy. How are you? Man, That's I'm good. That's always my response, too. I'm good. I know. I'm it's good, true. buddy. We're going to have how to start switching these up. We are, yeah. We're going to have to throw a curveball in there for people. Yeah. Anything super exciting happened this past two weeks for you? It's been two weeks since our last full episode where we've been on here. Well, so. holy moly. Uh, well, one little uh, change for me is that I'm back blogging exclusively on um, my own blog now. I'm no longer blogging for Pathios. Yeah. So, um, so that's a little different. Um, wish them all the best. It was just... Time for a change, and so uh, people can still get there the same way by going to gracesmessy.com, but it will take you to my blog now, yeah. so uh, so that's a little different. Yeah, back to the the good old Steve back when we met. It was just, just your own website. Start. That's right. Yeah. No, that's awesome. People so we met in a Facebook group chat. Is that what you said? A Facebook – a Christian Facebook group? Yeah, so one of the first uh, – I guess things that – I wrote, I put on, there's, for people that don't know, I guess there's all these Facebook groups for Christian bloggers and whatever. And I joined like 20 of them right away because I thought, oh, maybe I'll put them in here and, you know, it'll get right. some. And I yeah. posted one of them. I honestly can't remember which one. It was one of the first ones. And you commented on it uh, and said uh, something, something, we definitely know the same God, which I mm. thought was so cool. It was still to this day one of the coolest compliments anybody's ever given me, I think. So, oh, uh, and then, geez. you know, I went and checked out your website and stuff. And man, the rest is history. Years later, not, well, maybe, yeah, probably <laughs> maybe. right around a year. Yeah, ish. Something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I here think we so. are. Love it. It's Pretty awesome. Great. Hey, so yeah. we have a couple of business things to talk about. Let us. Right. First, a quick shout out to Justin, who let me borrow. I forgot my headphones with the microphone in them, and he let me borrow them to record this little bit here. So Man. shout out to him. Appreciate you, Justin. That's awesome. <laughs> Secondly, and I haven't even told you this yet. Oh, but man, I love these. Along with our fancy new intro there you know we're trying to be pretty legit be a, a fancy podcast or whatever we're so too legit to quit i know i'm excited to announce that we are now sponsored <gasps> by squarespace casper mattresses blue apron loot crate me undies harry's razors sherry's berries nature box and audible <laughs> is that for real no absolutely not 
from. Every time I'm listening to a podcast, oh it's all the ones that have ads in them, it's literally like the same four people. And every time I think it's so oh, funny because it's always the exact that's same hilarious. ones. Hilarious. So and, just, but what here's what I love about your delivery. Your delivery is so straightforward. And so like I'm like, wow, we have sponsors and I had no idea. This is huge news. And you're just like, blah, 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 blah. And you go down. <laughs> That's how you're going to announce this to the world? That's so awesome. Oh, that made me laugh so hard. That's great. Ah, good. That's part That's of the goal funny here. Stuff. I do think whenever yep. I listen to our episodes, whenever you start laughing, it like brightens my day. I start laughing. You're yes. a contagious laugh. So it's what. Here's what it is. You're one of those people with dry wit, and that slays me because oh, well. I don't have it. I have to be like I am purposefully trying to be funny, and it is like everybody knows Steve is trying to be funny right now, and it's like I have to do a song and dance with it. But you can just like throw a little one-liner in there and like keep that same inflection in your voice, and then I'm like, wait a minute. What the heck did you just <laughs> say? And that kills me. So funny. Uh, well, good. Yep, 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 I'm, yep, yep. I'm actually willing to bet that nobody else thinks that either of us is as funny as we think each other is, but that's probably right. not. That's okay. Well, we do have some actual business announcements, right? Yes. Uh, one main one, one big one. Should we do a, a drum roll? Do you want me to do boots and cats and boots and cats and boots and cats? Oh, there you go. Uh, freestyle rap about a big <laughs> announcement. <laughs> Okay, I'll do a drum roll. CXMH, moving forward, will be a weekly podcast starting this week. So excited. No more of this every other week thing. No more of this, what is a PS? <laughs> no more. Thank you for the PSs, people. PSs will become a special thing from time to time, maybe on Wednesdays. Yeah. But we're going weekly. I'm so excited about that. Definitely. It's been... I love the PSs and that I know that we both agree that other people are saying awesome things and we want to highlight that. And we, as you yes. said, will continue to do that uh, on, you know, Wednesdays or Thursdays as we find ones that we, that we think really align with uh, what we're saying and that, that, that we think are powerful, but it's waiting two weeks in between these episodes is I have been, and I've, I've heard them. I can listen to them anytime I want. Cause I have them all. I have been impatient waiting two weeks in between episodes wanting to hear more. So yep. we'll start this week with this episode, which uh, we'll get to in a, a, a second here. But starting with this episode, we'll move to a weekly format, which means every Monday you will have a brand new full episode of CXMH with some fantastic guests. Uh, and the PS episodes will be added bonuses throughout the week. So really excited and about that. And in the that. words of Mahatma Gandhi, this freaking rocks. <laughs> no? Not so much. He might. Hey, <laughs> crickets. He might have. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe he did. Uh, okay, so we have another announcement. Yes, go ahead. Should I'll do the drummer this one? Okay. Well, you're a drummer. That's not fair. Well, I don't. You did it with go your ahead. mouth. All right. <laughs> oh, you even had the symbol. That's so awesome. So, this is an announcement slash. Um, engagement survey is what we're doing here. Yeah. It's an announcement of a survey. So we want to do a really cool thing for Good Friday. So um, if you're listening and you're in the church and you've grown up in the church, 
Good Friday, like you got it. But if not, if you're not part of maybe the Christian tradition, you're like, what the heck is Good Friday? So Good Friday is um, a day of remembrance. It's the day that we reflect on the day that Jesus was crucified. And so it's called Good Friday. It was actually a freaking terrible day, but we call it Good Friday for whatever reason. But we want to use that day as as a way to to create some community, to create conversation, because that's what we do here at CXMH. We want to create conversation around struggles, yeah. darkness, hard times, questions, doubts, um, and we want to create a night. So, so our idea is to create a uh, to host a live episode, a special live episode. Um, we're going to have a, a friend of ours who's a priest from New York City, Liz Edmond, um, come on and do a very brief talk on Good Friday and talk about what Good Friday actually was and what it means to us today and the importance of holding tension and uh, allowing people to grieve or mourn or uh, be in places of uncertainty. And um, we want to be a place where, when we're talking about faith, where your fears matter just as much as your faith, where your doubts matter yeah. just as much as your faith, where we don't just sweep those things under the rug. So we want to do a special live event on Good Friday. We want to open it up several weeks ahead of time. We want to create a, a form or a page on the website or something for you listeners to send in audio confessions or laments, whatever you want to call them. Um, and so an example, let me give you a couple of examples, something like, hey, my name is Steve and um, I'm diagnosed bipolar type one and life really sucks right now and I'm having a hard time finding God. Something like that. Or, hey, um, my name is Robert, and I'm not sure that I actually believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Like, it can be as simple or as profound or as um, maybe out there as you think it might be, but we want to give you that space to say, when you're not okay, that's okay. Because we all have those times and those seasons. This is the longest explanation of something ever. But uh, no, the point good. is this. We want to create this space for you, and we want to know if this is something you'd be interested in. Would you be interested in sending in audio laments, confessions, um, a moment to bear your soul? Uh, it would have no identifying information. You wouldn't put your name, where you're from, any of that. Uh, you can put your name if you want your first name, but you don't have to. Yeah, And then we're going to create a sort of a liturgy around these confessions and and just talk about holding tension with each other. And um, that's really it. So we're today, um, we're putting out a survey, and it's just a one-question survey that asks, is this something you would be interested in? Do you plan to participate? Yes or no. Um, so um, we will put that on Twitter. We'll share that link. We'll share that on Facebook. Mm -hmm. Um, we'll put can we put that the, on the we can put it in the show notes so show can, notes perfect yeah, yeah so if Absolutely. you go to cxmhpodcast.com in the show notes for today's episode you can click on that link through SurveyMonkey one question and just let us know if it's something you're interested in or not we think it's a fantastic idea obviously but we want to know if you're interested yeah so that's it super excited about that yeah yeah 
We'll see if anyone else is, but if, <laughs> if not, you and I will hang out on Good Friday. That's right. Yep. Maybe we'll actually meet in person. Maybe. So, uh, hey, dude. Hey. This is a big episode. It is, and we have a fantastic guest. Oh, we are talking with Science Mike. Mike McCarg, <laughs> uh, he hosts Ask oh, Science God. Mike and The Liturgist with Michael Gunger and the author of Finding God in the Waves. I'm going to oh. guess that a lot of us listening know who he is. Uh, he's a Geeking out. big voice in uh, especially the online Christian community right now. He's so. a big voice and he's a deep voice. That's true. Science Mike's got a deep voice. That's my Science Mike impersonation. You're welcome. <laughs> He's the smartest Christian that we'll probably ever interview. And we talk to some smart people. That's true. I was actually debating earlier. This isn't a thing I ever thought that I would have to decide, but I was making some of the images for our upcoming episodes that we put out. And I had to think whether I put, if someone's a doctor, because we have people with PhDs on, whether I put like doctor so-and-so in the in the featured by or not. So we, we talk to some smart people. We do. That's true. But this guy... Off the charts. It's true. I just had this thought. If your voice is an antidepressant, like Sarah Fader says, sure. Science Mike's voice might be an anti-anxiety medicine because it is so calming. It is so calming. You're it's right. great. Here's what I love about him. Coming from a guy like me <laughs> who never thinks before he speaks, <laughs> like Science Mike is so – in his responses, he's going to tell you the truth. He's going to tell you his honest opinion on things if you ask. But he's so clear. He's so well-spoken. What he says is like – you know, and he'll use these big, huge, like $4 words. But when he's done, I'm like – he's like, did that make sense? I'm like, that made perfect sense. Yeah. Yes. Well, enough from us. Let's get to the, the main event here. Uh, we hope that you enjoy this episode with Science Mike. All right. Well, welcome. I am here, as always, with my co-host, Steve Austin, and we are so excited today to have Science Mike with us. Mike, how are you? Uh, great. It's, it's great to be here. Quick introduction, although I'm sure that most of you are familiar with Mike. He hosts the podcast Ask Science Mike, which is one of my favorites. He also hosts The Liturgists, author of the book Finding God in the Waves, really doing some cool stuff combining science and faith and how those two work with each other. So we're really excited to have you here, man. We Thanks are so thrilled. So pumped. <laughs> <laughs> true. Mike. And it, it, oh. I'm blown away by the, all the, the friends I posted on Facebook, you know, that we're, we're chatting with Science Mike in the morning. I did that last night. And oh, my word, dude, you got a fan base. <laughs> People are generous and lovely, I found. Oh, oh, so, oh. yeah, I really appreciate that. <laughs> yep. Well, tell us a little bit of your background, your story, just for those who might not have read your book or aren't super familiar with you. Just give us a little bit about what you've been doing recently. Uh, for the last couple of years, I have made a full-time occupation out of helping people make peace between their understanding of God and their understanding of science. And uh, what inspired me to do that was my own struggle as someone who grew up Southern uh, became an atheist as an adult, and then had a profound mystical experience that made me examine the origins of faith from a scientific perspective, and in that process, uh, learned ways that I could practice the Christian faith and have some belief in God and the Trinity, 
um, while still holding on to a fundamental scientific worldview. Hmm. Yeah, no big deal. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a, my uh, my job is to uh, do a couple podcasts. One is called Ask Science Mike. The other is called the Liturgist Podcast. So Ask Science Mike is a weekly question and answer show where I answer literally any question people have, which is really weird because I don't have any qualifications to answer anyone's questions because <laughs> um, I'm not a, a pastor or a scientist uh, or a counselor. Um, I just I'm just honest. Just a smart dude. And uh, the Liturgist podcast is co-hosted by uh, Michael Gunger, who's a musician and thinker. He's kind and, of... Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so we do a show that looks at topics through science, art, and faith. So uh, it's a really weird thing in that um, I think we have pretty good representation from like every major Christian denomination, as well as a large listener base that is uh, not religious or atheist or agnostic. Um which is a, a, a not a real common combination in an audience. And uh, I wrote a book called Finding God in the Waves. So uh, that's that talks about these issues in, in more depth and unpacks my story and how a Christian can become an atheist and how an atheist can try to approach God. And then I, I travel a lot. So I go from city to city uh, talking and meeting people and um, and you know doing this in person. And that's... Uh, it's what I do, and it's nothing I ever planned, um, <laughs> but it's my life now. Oh, it's so cool. So, so cool. Hey, can we start super basic? And here's what I mean. We So there's these buzzwords, and they're not buzzwords, but I guess they are. For, in my brain, they're buzzwords. So, so people throw around this idea of being a believer. People throw around atheist, and people throw around the word agnostic. So if we've got people who are listening today, and our show, you know, is typically, um, we say, the intersection of faith and mental health. Um, so if we have people who are maybe not well-versed in this idea of being an atheist or an agnostic or any of that, would you give us the sort of um, the the primer, maybe Reader's Digest version of what's the difference? What's this mean? And why should we care? Oh, yeah, sure. That's easy. Um an atheist is someone who lacks belief in any god or gods. Um, it just means they don't they don't believe in God at all. Period. Yeah. Um, now there's something called strong atheism, which rejects belief in any god or gods, where normal atheism just lacks belief. Okay. Um, and then agnosticism. There's really two flavors of agnosticism. One form of agnosticism is I don't know if there's a God or not. And the other form of agnosticism is I'm not, I don't think you can actually prove whether there is a God or not. So both of them are reasonable but unsupported positions to say there is a God or there is not a God. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you, sir. Yeah. <laughs> sure. I don't, well, you know, the, these, these conversations about skepticism and atheism and faith one of the reasons they get so uh, messy is because people in the discussion don't understand the terms they're using. Yes. And that can be, there are people who call themselves atheists and people who call themselves agnostic that don't actually have a strong understanding of what those terms mean. And uh, very, very common for Christians to misunderstand or misuse those terms. 
Yeah, I think it's important to know what we're talking about before we even jump into any of it. Yeah, I think I think a more informed conversation is always a more productive conversation. Yes, sir. Well, what I loved about your book, honestly, and your story, because I've heard some of it through the liturgists and through Ask Science Mike and things like that, what I loved was just this idea of there are so many people who are struggling with doubts and things like that, and it seems like a lot of times the church shies away from those conversations, would rather kind of ignore some of the doubts and things and just press on towards, you know, we all want to be certain about whatever it is, and you do not. You dive head on into doubts (laughs) and exploring those. And I think with the kind of people that Steve and I interact with or or that listen to this, uh, mental health, I know, at least for me, my biggest doubts faith-wise have stemmed from mental health things, right? I remember Mm. uh, in kind of the depths of of depression at one point thinking, you know, I, I don't have any maybe logical concerns with with faith and, and science or something. But man, I remember telling my wife, she wasn't my wife at the time, but I remember telling her that I'm I'm having some doubts because if God created me with the brain that is this messed up, then then he's a jerk, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so wrestling through some of the, the doubts and what faith looks like from that perspective. And I think there's a lot of parallels reading through your book. Um, you were saying things that I was like, yep, yep, Yep. Thank you for having these conversations. <laughs> so um, I really appreciate that about your work, that instead of trying to gloss over any of the doubts, what you, you get to look at them and say, all right, let's have an honest conversation about them. No, yeah, you don't. Oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was just going to say, I think, um, you know, based on the social structure and the epistemology of especially American Protestantism, um, one of the the social value propositions those traditions offer their adherents is a really strong sense of uh, moral certainty and uh, a, a, a clear understanding of right and wrong. So the, the, it's an attempt to remove ambiguity from the world. Mm-hmm. And so it makes a lot of sense that we've developed a cultural taboo against exploring uh, nuance and exploring, um, you know, ambiguous or difficult areas because it can reveal some maybe weaker assumptions in the worldview and in the belief system that can cause people a lot of psychological discomfort. And humans have this incredible bias towards certainty. We feel happy and comfortable and confident when we're certain about how we view the world. And so what I'm trying to do with my work is help people examine their beliefs um, or, or go through a period of doubt if that's something that's happening without existential angst, without fear, yeah. without depression, but simply say, it's a, we can do this uh, and still operate in the world, still operate it in community, and the stakes aren't actually as high as we tend to make them. Yeah. I think what is so beautiful, you know, so I'm not the science guy. Okay. I am not, that is your job and you rock it. I know. But so when I hear science, Mike's coming out with a book, I'm like, man, this is going to be so over my head. (laughs) But then I hear people talking about the book before I read it. I hear people talking about it and they're, 
weeping and they're talking about this this is my story there's so like robert said there's so many yeses there's so many thank yous there's so many oh my gosh this guy gets it and and so for me personally just a, a huge thank you for giving people the space to say man I, i'm not alone i'm not the only Christian. I'm not the only churchgoer out there who doesn't quite get all of this yet. I don't I I don't have names for what I feel or I can't, you know, maybe there's not a formula that I've figured out for God yet, but but this science Mike guy has given me permission to say that's okay. Um and, and the other big thank you is that in covering something like this, I you know, I've I've read other books, not not about science and God, but other books from other um, people in the Christian world um, that maybe are about doubts or maybe are about struggles or about the struggle with the church specifically, and they come across as angry. They come across, um, you know, a little more. We're going to bash. We're going to we're going to poke holes in the church. We're going to talk about the problems, but there's no solution. It's just I'm a Christian. I'm angry at the church. Rah rah rah. And and you don't get that sense from reading your book at all. And so I appreciate you being not only uh, incredibly intelligent with what you write and and talking about the science of it all, but also being very gracious. So I appreciate that very much. Yeah, that was um, a part of that's just my temperament. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I can't claim it as some, you know, great strategy or anything. It's just kind of how I'm wired. Um, But it's also... Uh, you know, I think change takes a lot of different approaches and some of those louder, angrier voices, they serve an essential role of getting everyone's attention. And even if they can create, you know, some polarization or some pushback, they get something on the table for discussion that wasn't before. Sure. And I'm not great at that. Uh, but with someone like me is better at once the issue is on the table how many people can I get here at the same time to discuss it and discuss it calmly? And so for someone who honestly has some pretty weird, abnormal theological assumptions, I still get invited into a lot of you know, relatively conservative churches. It's because you're a uh, decent guy, Mike. And it's right, because <laughs> the, we, we create a conversation where they feel uh, respected and valued and known. And that creates the space to discuss some topics they would generally would not discuss. Yeah, so good. So let me ask you, uh, this is kind of peripheral mental health, I guess. But so you were you experienced a, a motorcycle accident uh, a year ago, year and a half ago, somewhere yeah. in there. And I remember reading you were talking about on the podcast and tweeting about some of the after effects of that in terms of um, the way that it affected you. Could you talk about that a little bit for us? Sure, and I think um, I think brain injury is a great way to talk about mental health because it reveals the degree to which when we talk about mental health, we are talking about a medical issue involving the brain. Yeah. Um, and a, a blunt head trauma in some ways becomes so similar to a severe emotional trauma. Um, and then coping with the side effects of a brain injury creates its own uh, emotional problems. Um, in my case, I fell off my bike and um, I just had a, I struck the back of my head on the pavement really hard. I was wearing a helmet, but it was hard enough that I had a, 
a rebound concussion. So had a double brain bleed, one on uh, my forebrain, the front of my brain, because uh, your brain's kind of floating in your skull. So when the back of my head slammed against the ground, uh, my, you know, my brain kind of kept moving after I stopped and banged the back of my skull and then bounced back and banged the front of my skull. So I had uh, an injury in the rear of the brain and the front of the brain on opposite sides. And then it, 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 res- it rebounded so hard. Your brain is uh, kind of like a balloon on a string. Your brain stem is the string. And I actually stretched my brain stem and did a lot of damage to my vestibular system. And your vestibular system is responsible for coordinating uh, your balance and a lot, a lot of the um, coordination between your auditory and visual systems. So um, I was in a bad way. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't read or write. Um, so if you gave me, uh, you know, like when they gave me a form to check into the emergency room, I could name every letter, but I couldn't turn a letter into a word. Mm, gosh. Um, so it was just total, total calamity that way. And Especially what are you, are you some, in just a total panic at this point? What are you, you're looking at this form, you, you see I'm letters. I'm not quite and done with my book and uh-huh. I can't read. And <laughs> when I tried to like text my wife, when I first realized I was symptomatic, I just texted her like random letters mm. and she couldn't understand what I was talking about. She's like, like Mike has had too much to drink. Yeah. So she called me and, um, and it was, it was really frightening and I uh, just felt foggy and confused and I felt like I had a lot of work to do. And I didn't want to stop, but it turns out like to get over a major concussion like that, you literally have to rest. But mm-hmm. you, like when I mean rest, you can't read, you can't watch TV, you can't talk to people. You just wow. kind of sit in a dark room. And in my case, they prescribed an antipsychotic uh, really just to keep me from thinking. Yeah. I was just the the goal was to medicate me so much that I would just kind of be a vegetable. Hmm. And uh, so then the concussion cleared up in a matter of weeks. Uh, But then I I moved into something called post concussion syndrome. And that lasted much longer and is is still around today. And I had a number of uh, things that had never happened to me before. I could read and write again, which was great. Uh, but I noticed that for the first time in my life, sometimes I couldn't find the word I was looking for while talking. And mm-hmm. my wife tells me that's a normal thing that happens to everyone. <laughs> but if you've listened to my podcast, you probably understand I have a much higher than normal kind of verbal recall and capacity. Mm-hmm. I, it's not hard for me to articulate what I'm thinking at any moment. And I remember the first event I did after I fell off the motorcycle I got into the talk and just had to stop because I couldn't say anything. I had to take a couple minutes and just stand on stage and wait for my brain to kind of find a gear again. And everyone was gracious, but it, it was a strange feeling. And I started getting uh, motion sickness really bad. So I couldn't read or look at my phone when I was in a car or an airplane. And in a car, I had to sit in the front seat And I had to look straight out the window at the horizon the entire time where I literally couldn't stand to ride in a car. Um, It's been my wife as long as I've known her. But if that's not your norm, that's got to be 
jarring. I've never been motion sick. Yeah. I could ride every roller coaster. I could, you know, I just didn't get motion sickness. Mm. And I started getting anxiety attacks in social situations, crippling anxiety attacks. Mm. Um, which, given what I do, <laughs> yeah, kind uh, of a big deal. Is a big deal. It turns out the uh, the um, anxiety attacks were auditory driven. So I learned that if I put in earplugs, I was fine. Now I still couldn't like talk because I couldn't hear someone talking to me <laughs> in a social setting, like at a party. But at least I didn't have to run out of the room. Yeah. Mm. Um, and in time, most of those faded. I'm still a little prone to the anxiety attacks if there's a lot of voices like with some echo and background music. That, that's that's usually guaranteed to shut me down. Uh, and the motion sickness is better, but I, I've learned like, so I can't read and fly anymore, which for me is like a huge bummer. But I usually can like watch a video. I don't know why one my brain is okay with and not the other. Hmm. Um, so I've started uh, watching Netflix series, which is amazing because I usually don't watch TV. So now I know what people are talking about when they talk about Netflix. <laughs> Oh yeah, nothing like a binge. Um, but there was there was a whole emotional component to that process, uh, dealing with new limitations. And I've talked to several people who've had traumatic brain injury of some kind. And the first thing you have to learn to let go of is the old you, because after a brain injury, the pre-brain injury you never comes back. So you have to take this pivot and start looking for who you are now, the new you. Um, and the new you will be more limited than the old you. Uh, so even today, if I get too tired, my speech starts to slur like uh, I'm, I'm drinking a lot. Wow. Uh, and it's just that, you know, my brain doesn't have the stamina it used to have. And I just need a lot more sleep in order to maintain you know, consistent function and consistent verbal capacity. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's some, there's some depression and sadness that goes along with that process and some grief. And depending on how severe the injury is, that can take a long time, especially because uh, often when you have a concussion, the parts of the brain that would help you kind of make sense of what's going on are the parts of the brain that are injured. And so it reduces your capacity to think analytically or process emotions. Um, and I found it to be a really valuable experience um, because I understand people with social anxiety in a way I never did before as an extrovert. Yeah. And Talk I understand. About that some more. Well, um, I know what it's like to get in a room full of people and panic. Yeah. And to have concern when someone's like, hey, do you want to come to this party? To not want to go because you don't want to be embarrassed because you can't handle Yep. Um, you know, some of my friends on the autistic spectrum, um, I understand now why they clamp their hands over their ears mm -hmm. uh, when people start clapping in an auditorium or the music's too loud. I get that now. Yeah. Um, not to say my experience is, is, you know, comparable to someone on the autistic spectrum. But I do understand what it's like to be overwhelmed with sensory information in a way that I never understood before. Mm. Um, and I have more patience. Um, <laughs> like I understand 
it's not always easy to say what you're thinking. And that's something I, I really never understood before. <laughs> uh, and I, I think, you know, reflecting on the injury and the experience has given me a better understanding of the experiences of others and therefore a deeper empathy. Yeah. Boy, this is just fascinating. Yeah. My goodness. All right. So in your book, you talk a bit about neurotheology. I think there's a kind of a, a chapter here on neurotheology based on uh, some work that Andrew Newberg and others are doing. Uh, could we talk about that for a bit? Because I think that part to me being, uh, you know, in kind of the mental health sphere was so fascinating. Yes, it was. So neurotheology has nothing to do with the work of theology because theology is the study of God. And neurotheology is not a study of God, but really an effect of what theology does to the brain. So what do different beliefs about God do to human brains? So it's utterly unconcerned with existential questions or if God exists or who God is and instead measures, you know, when you believe X about God, what happens in your brain? And how does that affect your emotions, your cognitive function, and your behaviors? And that really laser-focused, pragmatic approach gives some really amazing findings uh, that can be appreciated, celebrated, and utilized by people of all different walks of faith or even no faith at all. Mm. Wow. <laughs> And we were just talking before this about how this might be our smartest episode yet. <laughs> like I'm sitting here going, I love smart people. <laughs> oh, it's phenomenal. So you talk a bit about the difference uh, that it has on your brain in believing in an angry God and a loving God, right? Where the angry God uh, activates your amygdala, things like that. Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. Yeah. The, well, the, one of the most amazing findings I've seen come out of neurotheology which is a relatively new discipline, by the way, because brain imaging is a relatively new technology. Sure. Um, but one of the most interesting findings I found to me was that when they looked across all different kinds of faith, um, they found everyone's God fit into kind of two buckets neurologically. Mm. Uh, and one is an angry God, a God whose primary attribute is wrath, or vengeance and believing in an angry God has measurable effects on your brain and on your behavior. So, uh, an angry God causes, uh, sustained activation or arousal in the amygdala, which is the part of the brain that coordinates fear and anger. Uh, it causes elevated blood pressure and stress hormones. Um, when we study it behaviorally, this is what I like about neurotheology. It's not just based on brain imaging. Uh, brain imaging is pretty limited, so it also extends into behavioral studies and cognitive studies. And they found that it's difficult to forgive yourself, or forgive other people when you believe in an angry God. You tend to be fearful of outsiders or people that you view as not part of your tribe when you believe in an angry God. Um, so, you know, and you also tend to get uh, angry more easily because you view more things as a threat. Um, mm. so that's not all bad though for an angry God, an angry God in the short term gives you better impulse control, uh, because it really 
um, brings your brain's kind of moral supervisor to, to the front of your brain all the time. Because if you think God is angry or wrathful and you take a cookie out of the cookie jar you're not supposed to take, God might smite or punish you. And so it increase, increases like a, a moral supervision with the caveat that if you break uh, the rules, you tend to break them huge because why not? <laughs> uh, you're going to get in huge trouble anyway. So why not go whole hog if you're going to do something wrong? And hey, go ahead. Robert, are, yeah. are you are you seeing Jim Carrey right now outside the car with his hands raised and his fists shaking going, smite me, almighty smite. Are you seeing that? Because I am. <laughs> oh man, I actually wasn't. I was seeing uh, like the Facebook comment section anytime somebody posts about how you know what Jesus would do politically. That's what I was seeing. The 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 al dot com article I wrote yesterday. I found God in a gay bar. That yep. that those four hundred comments. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, angry God. Yeah. Oh man, I don't encounter the angry God crew a lot anymore. They're um, they're not attracted to my work. Uh, <laughs> Because, you know, I have found I have a lot of conservative listeners, theologically conservative. Yeah. But they are theological conservatives who have a loving God. Yeah. That's and that changes their approach. So, see the segue there, what I did? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, how's a loving God different? If you believe God's primary attribute is love or grace or forgiveness, uh, it's completely different in your brain. Uh, we see... Uh, higher levels of activity in the anterior cingulate cortex. That's the part of the brain responsible for love, compassion, and empathy. We see increased activity in the brain's prefrontal cortex, which, among other things, is responsible for focus and concentration. And in fact, when people uh, pray and meditate regularly to a loving God, they experience uh, development of healthy, richer brain tissue in those two parts of the brain, literally growing new brain tissue. <laughs> um, and it lowers your stress levels. It makes it easy for you to forgive yourself and to forgive other people. It makes you less fearful of outsiders. It makes you more likely to respond with empathy than anger to the same amount of stimulus. Uh, it turns out it's a huge behavioral win for people to believe in a loving God. Um, And, I, I, and, to, and to be very clear, your God and your understanding of God can have both a love attribute and an anger attribute, but it's it's how far your individual you know seesaw tilts one way or the other will determine the effects on your brain. And neurologically speaking, the more you see God as loving, the better it is for you to believe in God. Hmm. So I got to quote one little paragraph because this is just oh, it's so good. Even more, people who believe that God is loving will eventually develop a characteristic asymmetry in the activity of the thalamus. When that happens, God's love becomes implanted in their sense of identity, and they begin to see the world as basically safe. This is not this not only allows the believer to experience peace it also elevates her capacity to take risks for the sake of others for those who know the loving god the risk of being hurt in relationships is less important because god's love will transcend that hurt mm. that's so good 
it is amazing. And I love writing a book because I get to write a sentence like that or a paragraph like that based on someone else's research. <laughs> I mean, based on scientific fact, what the heck? That's just, man, it's so good. Yeah. Yeah. Neuroscientists are, some, are amazing. Yeah. It's not, you know, just some preacher's assumption about what he's always heard because this is the way we've always believed and you know my bible says it and i believe it and you know that's it amen this is it, oh it's just so good it just it changes the way that i look at god and i'm sure that has to be you know part of your goal in writing a book like this but it man it's just it's just so good yeah i, I mean neurotheology is why i'm a christian <laughs> i couldn't get behind a lot of this stuff until I understood the profound beneficial effects on the brain, and that gave me the freedom to go, even if I'm wrong about this God thing, or even if I'm not sure about this God thing, practicing the Christian faith centered around a loving God is great for my brain and opens up the practice to a skeptic. And any, uh, you know, mature Christian, I think, would tell you that when you open yourself up to the practice of faith, Uh, you'll find God along the way. So for listeners who um, maybe have not listened to Science Mike um, or have not listened to The Liturgist, okay, let's let's say it's Science Mike, though, and um, you come across this person who is a skeptic, um, an atheist, uh, an agnostic, I don't know, but but someone who um, has walked away from their faith, quote-unquote, and they say, you know, how can you believe in in this God who started wars? How can you believe in this God who, you know, and they start quoting all this um, Old Testament stuff, all the terrible things that happened. How do you, um, where you're at now, have a, a healthy, gracious discussion that invites them, hopefully, um, to reconsider God? What does that look like? It's hard to say in like a blanket term um, because I don't have like conversational strategies and, you know, uh, desired end states. I, I tend to approach every person as an individual with their own story. I do mm-hmm. a lot of listening hmm. and I tend to mainly answer questions. I don't tend to just uh, spontaneously offer insights. That's good stuff. Um, because it puts people off. It's not effective. Mm-hmm. Um, so if the person said to me, uh, I'm, I don't believe in God because I see a lot of brutality in the Old Testament, I would probably yeah. say, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> and if they then said, well, how can you believe in a God who authorizes or commands genocide? And, you know, the early part of the Old Testament, uh, I would say, oh, easy. I don't think God commands genocide. <laughs> You'd mail them a Pete Enns book. Uh, right. <laughs> and I would I would probably then talk to them about the the way in which our understanding of God is always enmeshed in a cultural context and that the greatest failing of the Reformation was to encourage people to read ancient literature in an enlightenment context. 
And then modern fundamentalism took that and not, said, not only do we read it in an Enlightenment context, we're going to read the Bible as modernists, and we're going to read the Bible as if it was written to us. Right. And historians would tell you that's a terrible way to read ancient works, including the Bible. Nobody reads, you know, the Iliad as a document that was written to <laughs> Americans. Yeah. No one does that. It, yep. it would you wouldn't catch the what the story is trying to convey if you tried to do that. And it turns out that the way modern Christians tend to read the Bible is a very lazy way of studying the Bible. That you cannot read the Bible alone. You have to look at good scholarship about the author, the audience, and the agenda of that author in order to open the text. So if we talk about um, an exilic period in Egypt where uh, in the text you have people living in slavery under bondage and they're freed and they wander the desert and then they make it into the promised land and they're commanded to take this land. At that point in history, a sign of God's favor was what? Soil. Your, your, your faith was, you could not be separated from your ability to have land. We would also understand that those oral traditions were written down and codified during a period of exile. And they were meant to send a message from an author to an audience. And that audience was, today we were, are in the desert, but one day if we're faithful, we will make it back to Zion, right? That's the whole, the whole imagery yeah. of Moses and the generation not making it into the promised land is if you doubt God's faithfulness, we won't have deliverance. And when you read it in that context, you understand these are, are primarily poetic devices. This is um, not a, a historian dryly reciting facts because there was no such thing as objective history at that time in human culture. It didn't exist. That was inv invented millennia later. Yeah. And when we look at archaeology, and, and we do, we have some archaeological insights, we find that the conflicts denoted in the Torah about the settilization of the promised land are overblown. These were there was no cities burned to the ground. There were small skirmishes, and even in the text we find ultimately what even in the text the cities weren't destroyed because the authors had to explain somehow that non-Jewish people lived here, that non-Jewish culture played an influence on the region, and they said that's because people failed to follow God's commandment completely, and they are what we pick up an agenda from an author to an audience, and and. Viewed that way, the Bible is much more complex and much more subtle and much more nuanced, but still incredibly informative because it gives us a picture going back 3,500 years of how people wrestled to know and follow the same God we try to know and follow today. And uh, if we view the Bible more the way the people who wrote it would, in a, in a, in a you know, Jewish context, 
the Bible is meant to record a debate about God and not a final answer. There's a reason different authors take different positions. They're trying to show why their understanding is more correct. And there was an expectation in that culture that there would be a, a healthy discussion in community around the text and not a modern perspective of someone sitting down and saying, what do these words have to say to me individually? There's very rarely in the entirety of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, any sentence that was written to an individual. The word you in the Bible is almost always a plural you. That's right. Hmm. Sorry, I just like ranted for five minutes. (laughs) No, it was awesome. Hey, man, I love asking a question and getting a a fantastic answer like that. That's that's just fantastic. It's true. Hey, I promise not to edit more than like four and a half minutes of that out. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever, you better not. Um, No. So I have no segue here, but can we, (laughs) are you okay with us talking current event political question as it relates to faith and mental health yeah just be careful i answer questions honestly and without oh, I, hesitation. perfect perfect okay i want to talk about we're, we're talking about an angry god we're talking about a loving god we're talking about neurotheology we are the faith and mental health podcast and you are the smartest person we'll ever have on the show <laughs> so <laughs> you're doomed i, I want to talk about the mental health impact what do you think the mental health impact is of President Donald Trump, the Christian? Even the question is loaded. Um, <laughs> I, I think you could safely say we're, we have a, a national anxiety epidemic right now as a result of the outcome of the election and the first week of presidential action by this administration. And I, I think... Uh, statistics bear that out. Um, This is a president that came into office with the lowest approval record on the lowest approval rating on we've ever had on record. Right. And then the fastest decline from the lowest starting point since we've been able to poll people. Um, His support is weakening among people who voted for him and is catastrophic among people who did not. Um, So we we could look at a couple of outcomes. One, for people who did not vote for Donald Trump. This is an incredibly stressful, anxious time. There's a lot of people experiencing chronic, continuing anxiety that can manifest itself, like, in depression. Yeah. Um, and, And that's very serious. And I noticed early in the election process that was uh, minimized by people, many people who voted for Trump uh, or people who didn't vote for Trump but have a lot of faith in American institutions. Um, they're saying there's nothing to worry about. Quit quit whining. Yeah. Yeah. Which is not appropriate. Uh, that's You don't end grief by telling someone to stop grieving. Dry it up. If, if they take your advice, they repress their grief at the cost of their mental health. And uh, you can bury grief, but it will eventually rise like a zombie. Yes, it will. Um, and, and mess you up. So, um, And then we also see um, effects on people who voted for Donald Trump. Because 
Many of them face a choice now to double down on their support, um, which is, is, is something uh, human biases encourage you to do if you've made an investment in a particular line of thinking or identity. Uh, there's a big uh, cost to your image of self to abandon that. So many are doubling down and finding themselves living, living in kind of an alternative universe from the rest of us. But then others are saying, um, uh, you know, I disavow this guy. And when they do that, uh, people who were formerly uh, allies become enemies, even if they try to maintain kind of hospitable relationships. This is not a time where uh, people who voted for Trump and people who didn't. It seems historic, the level of division. Um it's never yeah. felt this way to me before. Great, I'm a young guy. I'm 34, right. but it's never felt this way to me before. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I, his, most historians I've read have said you really have to go back to like 1860 to see the country. That was sort of a pivotal time. This upset following an election. Um, and so then if they, if they decide, you know, I'm going to disavow this guy, it, it does come at some emotional cost. And there's not a lot of in social incentive for people to be gracious as you change your mind. Uh, I've noticed a lot of like, we're going to stick it to you. You voted. You're going to deal with this. Yeah. And I'm not going to deal with like the political strategy of that. That'd be outside the scope of the show. Sure. Yeah. But that does have a mental health cost all around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, the, the research that I've seen coming out of, you know, like crisis lines, things like that are, you know, increased numbers since the election and things like that. So I think, there is some um, indicators that, that that that's the case. And every expert opinion I've read says that this gets a lot worse before it gets any better. So uh, this, so we're in for a rough ride. Hey, we'll end if it there we were, on a high note. That's uh, okay. I'm just <laughs> the, I would say though, I, I I'm thinking, I'm asking and thinking out loud, and that can be dangerous. But that that this. Donald Trump the Christian, that this would fit in in the the neurotheology of the angry God. This is the um, this is the telling Christians to fear Muslims God. Don't would you agree? I would, yes. Uh, now I, I'm not entirely sure Trump has a mental image of God. Fair. He may. Um I'm not a psychologist, and psychologists don't diagnose from a distance. But many mental health experts have uh, shared their opinion that Donald Trump seems to manifest many attributes of narcissistic personality disorder. Um, And if you kind of look at a diagnostic matrix (laughs) for narcissistic personality disorder, uh, they'll predict a lot of his first week actions, <laughs> basically. Yeah. Um, and um, there's not a lot of space in a narcissist's mind for a supreme being, mm. because they are a supreme being. Mm. Um, but the the God Trump and his supporters are using to motivate religious folk is very arguably an angry God. Yeah. And, and we look at that based on the um, observed 
attributes of this community. Fearful towards outsiders. Yeah. Punitive. Punish. Law and order. All those things. Well, that's even, we were talking about the political divisiveness, but what's interesting to me is I feel like more than ever I'm seeing a sharp contrast between people who believe in those two gods, right? You have people saying this, uh, you know, the refugee ban, right? One half saying Jesus would never do that. He's compassionate. He doesn't have walls or borders. And the other half saying, no, it's fine to, you know, keep ourselves safe and kind of guard ourselves. And, and so I, I feel like I'm seeing a bigger divide in terms of those two. Yeah, but I mean, it's not as it's not as loving God versus anger God is a component here. It, I, I don't think we'd oversimplify and say that's the sole driving factor. Um, there's a lot of um, nationalism and political ideology is playing a huge role here, and um, it would be possible to be a person who, under, who believes in a loving God but is a nationalist politically, and. You know, that could cause you to say, I'm going to have personal compassion for refugees, but as a policy, I support what Trump is doing. Sure. Um, so there's there's a lot of nuance available here because human brains are incredibly, incredibly complicated and our worldviews are sophisticated. Even, even worldviews that we might be tempted to call unsophisticated are, biologically speaking, very sophisticated. There's a lot more factors at play than we see in most organisms dictating our behavior. Yeah. I, uh, so I'm in a counseling program working towards a master's, and in one of my intro classes we were doing kind of the brain and things like that. And I remember my professor saying, and this stuck with me, he said that a lot of people are of the idea that the human brain isn't complex enough to understand itself. Like the, there's so much going on in there that we couldn't maybe even process all the stuff that's happening. Would you agree with that or disagree because you're smarter than me? I'm agnostic to that. We don't have enough information to make a determination one way or the other. You can make an argument that no system can understand itself because to build a a model of absolute predictive fidelity of a system, you can only do that if the model is as complex as the system itself, which leaves no room for understanding the system. Sure. Um, you know, can you model the universe inside the universe with absolute fidelity? Most, most theoricians would say no. And that's kind of what we're talking about the brain. But then the, the, the counter argument is, well, no, maybe one brain can't understand the brain, but many brains working together can understand a Mm. brain. Um, which one of those is correct? I don't think anyone could say one way or the other. Well, no, if we ever do it, (laughs) But other than that, I think it remains an unanswered question. Fair enough. I know that's a really unexciting answer, but that, no, I tend no, it's to great. Hedge my bets uh, on matters like that. Well, hey, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Uh, loved your book. If you haven't read this book, Finding God in the Waves, you should. It's a fantastic read. Uh, you can listen to Mike on the Science Ask Science Mike podcast, as well as the Liturgists, or you can find him on social media uh, all over the place. Do you have any closing words for us? Uh, On a show about mental health, everybody, uh, take care of yourself. This is a stressful time. There's a lot of anxiety going around. And be intentional. Don't read the news all day, every day. Don't look at Facebook and Twitter all day, every day. 
takes significant time, five, six hours a day to remove that stimulus and you'll lower your overall anxiety and find yourself better positioned to take action toward meaningful change. 100% the truth. That's so good. Thank you for that. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks. It's my pleasure. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMHpodcast at gmail.com. A final note, if you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.